Well, any Seinfeld fans in the room, let me see a show of hands if you're a Seinfeld fan. Okay, well, there's, there's a lot of you, all right? You're my people, all right? All my friends, my close friends anyways, they, they love Seinfeld. I, I, I love Seinfeld. It was one of the, the greatest sitcoms like ever in the history of television. Brandon and I for years were trying to convince Mark to watch Seinfeld. He was too young. He thought it was stupid. And then he finally like watched a few episodes and he was hooked. And he's now one of our Seinfeld brothers. Thank, thank the Lord. Okay. So, so, but, but in Seinfeld, there's this character named George Costanza. And if you, you know, Seinfeld, you, you know, that George has a lot of bad luck with the ladies, right? He's not that successful in relationships. And so he's kind of complaining to Jerry one day, his friend Jerry. And Jerry says, you know what you need to do? You need to do the total opposite. If every decision you've ever made in relationships is wrong, that's encouraging, right? Then maybe you should do the opposite. And George is like, do the opposite, huh? Okay. So he's in this diner. He's sitting there. There's this girl he wants to go up and like introduce himself to. And uh, he's like, no, I, you know, I can't do it. And Jerry's like, you got to do the opposite. He's like, all right, I'll do the opposite. So he, he actually gets up and he goes up to her and he introduces himself. And instead of lying to her about who he is and his situation and his circumstances and his job, which is what he's normally done, right? If you know Seinfeld, you know, George is like a, you know, this, this architect and he's an importer, exporter, and he does all these different jobs, right? He's just constantly lying about his life and what he does. So he walks up to this lady in the diner and he says, hi, I'm George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. And she's like, really? And she steps forward and she, she introduces herself and she engages and they, they start talking. He did the total opposite by just like being completely honest about who he was and what was wrong with him, right? And all of the deficiencies there and what it was going to be like dating him, like a, a bald, unemployed, living with his parents guy, you know, in his 30s. And she's She's into it. I, I, don't, I don't know about you. That's probably not, it's just a sitcom, right? It's probably not the best strategy. Like just to walk up to a girl or a guy and just tell them everything that's wrong with you, right? And what it's really gonna be like dating you or being married to you, right? They're gonna run. They're going to run. It's probably not the best strategy. And yet, it's exactly what Jesus does. It's exactly what Jesus is going to do here in Luke chapter 14. In, in Luke chapter 14, we've seen this over and over and over again, but, but, but really here in Luke chapter 14, you're going to see Jesus has no desire to hide his identity or the requirements from those who want to follow him as if he wants to get your decision first and then tell you the rest of the story later. Like that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is going to make it clear to everyone just how much following him is going to require. Jesus is going to say, you must be ready to drop your identity and identify with him and with his suffering. And that following him may mean ostracism. It may mean isolation. It might mean persecution. It might even mean death. Jesus is going to say, being in relationship with me, like from the, from, from the front, right? From the beginning, before you even make the decision, he's going to say, being in relationship with me is going to be tough. It's going to be tough. It's not going to be easy. In fact, you're, you're going to have to get really uncomfortable. If you want to know me, you want to be in relationship with me, you want to follow me, it's going to be a tough road. The gospel salvation is free. It's a gift that you receive. 
But discipleship, like this sanctification process of knowing and following Jesus and dying to yourself and submitting to him and repenting of sin and turning to him, that this, this daily walk, a, a, a relationship of following, like that's going to be tough. And Jesus is going to say, like, before you ever make a decision to follow me, just know it's going to cost you a ton. It's going to cost you a lot. And so Jesus is going to say, count the cost. Count the cost. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're in a series where we're studying the gospel of Luke verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're challenging you to not just study the gospel of Luke in here with us, but study the gospel of Luke this coming week through our daily devotionals on our app, Monday through Friday. We're gonna break down these same verses with more commentary and prayer and application points. Study the gospel of Luke with us in our city groups this next week. We're gonna study the same passage and talk about it and pray together in our Bible study groups that we call city groups. We're challenging you to study the gospel of Luke as a family with the table talk. That's another Bible study resource on our app under the Bible study tab. Get together around a table with your family, maybe today at lunch or tonight at dinner, this, this week, and discuss the Gospel of Luke. Your kids right now, our students right now, are studying these same verses. And so the table talk brings the family together to discuss what the Lord was doing as he spoke to you and what he was doing in your heart and in your life. And so there's questions and prayer and all kinds of resources there on the table talk so that your family can study the word together and, and, and pray together. And so we're studying the gospel of Luke verse by verse, and we preach through the Bible here, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, because we just believe that that method of preaching produces disciples of Jesus that are healthier, that are deeper, that are more effective, that are more faithful, that are more steadfast, that are more generous disciples of Jesus, that, that this will produce marriages that are deeper and richer. This will produce kids that love Jesus and know what they believe and why they believe it. So, so make no mistake. In these moments that we have here together, we are going to battle. We're, we're going to battle. So, so I just want to like challenge you to not like just sit back and watch as if this is theater, as if this is a show. Like lean in, engage in our time together and go to battle with us. We're going to battle against Satan and his schemes to take you and your family out, to ruin your marriage, to capture your kids. We're, we're going to battle against our own apathy, against the lusts of our flesh. We're going to battle against the idols in our heart. We're going to battle against our selfishness against our own comfort. We're going to battle against the lies of the enemy and the deception that we have bought into. We're going against, that we're, we're, we're battling against wrong doctrine and we're battling for right doctrine because that's important. And so we're going to, to battle and I'm challenging you to go to battle with us in these moments that we have together. So Luke chapter 14, would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord. Jackson Slayton is gonna come and read for us starting in verse 25. And as you stand and as he comes, I wanna remind you that Jesus said that his words would never pass away. So what we're studying in God's word this morning is what Jesus wanted for. He said we would always have his words. He said his words would never pass away. And because he rose from the dead, proving that he's God, we believe that Jesus isn't a liar, that he was telling us the truth and that we have his words today. And so we believe it's the word of God, we trust it, and so we submit ourselves underneath it. 
and we believe it. So Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Jackson, would you come and read for us? Morning. Uh, my name is Jackson Slayton, and I'm involved here in a city group at the city, and I also serve on the media team um, for City Nights on Wednesdays. Let's read uh, Luke 14, 25 through 35. A large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, If you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, there's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war against another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him? And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? Flavorless salt is good neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown away. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Thank you, Jackson. You may be seated. So here's what Jesus says. Count the cost. There's a cost to knowing me, to following me. There is a cost. Here's what you got to understand. There is a cost to discipleship. There's a cost to discipleship. And this is where you follow along in our app with the message notes. If you don't have our app, you can download it in your app store. It's called the City Church Lubbock. And the verses and the points, everything are there that we're talking about today. And here's where you fill in the blank. It's a great way to stay engaged in our time together. But Jesus says there's a cost to discipleship. Jesus is now headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross. We, we've seen that in some of our previous passages, that he's got this purpose, that he's going to Jerusalem to fulfill. And this passage here summarizes this shift in emphasis from confrontation with the Jewish leadership that, that we've seen over and over and over again in our previous weeks. There's a shift now to preparing the disciples for his departure and for their difficult, difficult costly life as disciples of Jesus once he's gone. Jesus is warning them against making some hasty decision to follow him. He, Jesus is saying potential disciples must first count the cost to see if they will persevere in the faith, to see if they're going to follow through on their commitment. Because if you don't follow through on your commitment, then, they, then the commitment was just empty. Like the commitment was meaningless if you don't follow through on the commitment, right? I mean, just ask any husband or wife. They're, they're going to want you to follow through on your commitment. And if you don't follow through on your commitment that you made at the altar that day when you took those vows, they're going to say, well, the commitment was meaningless to you, right? You were just saying empty words if you don't follow through on your commitment. And the same is true for you and I. Some of us recited some words, some pastor led us to pray, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, except that those words are not in the Bible anywhere. And by repeating them, 
by just saying them, by just verbalizing them, it does nothing. If your heart's not engaged there, and if it's not a commitment, you're ready and willing to follow through on. And so if you just kind of recited some words, that, that's kind of like witchcraft. Like I just, I'd say this and all of a sudden something happens or it's true because I said something. No, that's, that's not what's happening here. Jesus says, you, you're going to make a commitment. You got to be ready to follow through on it. Otherwise that, that commitment was worthless. It was, it was pointless. Jesus is going to say, you got to count the cost. If you're going to follow me, you need to count the cost. And so that's what we're doing this morning. What, what's, what, are, what are these, what's the cost of discipleship? What, what's this cost that Jesus is talking about? Well, number one, it's the cost of popularity. It's the cost of popularity. Jesus has these large crowds, it says in verse 25, large crowds are following him. Jesus has got a lot of fans and that's, that's cool. Like that, that's okay to a point, but, but here's the problem with, with fans. Here, here's the problem with, with just crowds of people. Crowds, fans want to watch the game from the stands. They don't want to be in the game, right? They don't want to be in the game. They just want to watch the game. And so they sit in the stands and they keep their distance. And then what do, what do fans do that watch a game? They cheer or what? Or they criticize. Fans have the luxury of cheering or criticizing those who are in the game and paying a price to actually be in the game and play the game. Fans sit and watch and are entertained. And depending on how well they're entertained, they cheer. Or if they're not entertained very well, they criticize. That's what fans do. That's what, that's what crowds do. You see, fans are excited about Jesus loving them, but they don't want Jesus messing with their life. Fans are excited about Jesus being Savior, but... but, but Let's hold off on Jesus being Lord. Like, I don't want him actually like messing with my life, right? So they're all about affirmational love. That's what fans seek, affirmational love. But followers understand that Jesus didn't practice affirmational love. Jesus practiced transformational love. And so followers submit themselves to the transformational love of Jesus who takes what's old and he puts that away and he brings something brand new. The old is gone, the new has come. You're, you're reborn into this new spiritual life. Followers, as opposed to fans, they're all in. Followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus understand. I, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I was an orphan, but now I'm a child of God. I was dead, but now I'm alive in Christ. I'm all in. He gave it all for me. And so I'm going to lay down everything for him. Followers are in the game, regardless of the cost. They don't just stand back and watch like this is something to watch or behold or to see. This isn't theater. Followers say, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm in the game. I'm engaged. I'm all in. Do you know Jesus never asked for fans? He had a lot of fans. A lot of crowds are following him, but he, he doesn't ask for fans. He, he's not calling for fans. Jesus calls 
for followers. He calls for disciples. And when the message starts getting tough, you see the fans are there, the crowds are there because they, they like what Jesus has to say. He's doing some cool tricks for them, right? He, he's, he's feeding them. He's doing some, so, some miraculous signs and wonders. And they're all about that. But when the message starts getting tougher and Jesus is like, hey, I'm glad you've come, come to see, but, but now it's time to follow and come and die. What happens to the crowds? They start thinning out. When the message gets tough, when, 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 when the cost starts to be felt, fans take off. The followers remain. Disciples remain regardless of the cost or how uncomfortable things may get. Now, this is an interesting strategy of Jesus, isn't it? Like Jesus, you've got thousands of people, you got the crowds, you got, you got all these fans, you got all these crowds of people. And, and so why are you saying things that would thin out the crowds? It's not really the best church growth strategy, is it? I mean, Jesus, if he was an American pastor, he would get fired. He, he would have. He would have been fired because they would have said, hey, Jesus, we want crowds of people and you're thinning out the crowds. Like we, we want people to come and, and people aren't coming, right? The, 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 you're, you're, you're talking in a way that's, that's pushing people away, right? You need to be more seeker sensitive. It's an interesting strategy that Jesus has here. Seems like Jesus isn't too concerned with crowds. He's not too concerned with just having fans. Jesus has a different goal in mind. He's after followers. He's after disciples who count the cost and say, Jesus, whatever the cost, whatever it means, I'm following you. I'm with you. There's an old hymn. It's called, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. And there's a line, a stanza in that hymn that I love. And it says, though none go with me, you remember the rest of it? Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. As for me and my house, we're going we're gonna to serve the Lord. Regardless of what other families are doing, as for the, the, though no other families go with us, we still are going to follow. We are still going to know and serve the Lord. This is the cost of popularity, though none go with you, though, though the crowds may be thinning out, though your fans may be getting fewer and fewer, though our culture continues to reject us stronger and stronger, though none go with me, I still will follow. It's the cost of popularity. Secondly, the, the cost of discipleship is the cost of Priority. It's the cost of priority. You notice Jesus said, when, when, when compared to your relationship with me, your, your love for me by comparison, you must hate your father, your mother, your wife, your husband, your brother, your sister, your, your mother-in-law, your sister-in-law, your brother-in-law, your cousin. It's like the Holy Spirit's going, anybody else out there? Uh, what about your second cousin? Yeah, second cousin. Uh, what, what about my, uh, my third cousin? Yeah, your third cousin. What about my best friends, you know, family? Yeah, them too, right? I, I love this because it's like Jesus is saying, listen, you're going to love before any other relationship here on this, you're going to love me with all of your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. I am going to come first. And some of you might be like, wait a second, hate? Like, 
What is Jesus talking about here? I thought I was supposed to like love my neighbor as myself. I thought I was supposed to like love my wife like Christ loves the church. Like, like I'm supposed to love my kids, right? Well, what Jesus is doing here is Hebrew hyperbole. This word hate's not the, the same thing that you and I are thinking of. This is Hebrew hyperbole to get your attention, to wake you up, that Jesus is demanding your primary devotion. He's demanding your absolute devotion. Jesus wants your heart. Not a divided heart. He wants all of your heart. Now, teachers, prophets, rabbis in Jesus' day regularly demanded great respect and affection. But in Jewish tradition, only God openly demanded such wholesale devotion as Jesus is demanding here. Think Deuteronomy 6. God says through Moses to the nation of Israel, you're going to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what Jesus is doing here. He said, you're going to love me first and foremost. Like I'm going to be primary in your, I'm going to be number one in your heart. Jesus here is demanding the same thing that, that God is demanding. So, so who is this? Who, who is Jesus? Is he just some good moral teacher? Is he just some kind of new prophet in the line of many prophets of God? Is he just some kind of rabbi? Right, right? No, that's not who Jesus is. He's claiming to be God. He, he's saying that he and the Father are one. Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So so. <laughs> Who is this guy that's demanding wholesale devotion that, that only God can demand? Well, at the city church, we have what's called the city seven. The city seven are seven foundational truths that remind us of what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And this week is city seven truth number one. It, it asks this question, who, who is Jesus? Who is this guy that's demanding all of my heart, that, that's commanding primary allegiance and devotion. Who, who is this guy? So who is Jesus? Now here's your part, right? Congregation, ready? One, two, three. I believe Jesus is God because Jesus said he is God and proved it by rising from the dead and appearing to his disciples, his brother James, 500 others at one time, and Paul. Jesus proved that he's God by rising from the grave and then appearing to all of these people. And they went to their graves claiming that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. They were willing to die in horrible, awful ways claiming that they saw Jesus risen from the grave. So, so who is this guy that's demanding only what God demands? He's God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. And so he's demanding that which God demands. Primary devotion. All of my heart. You know, you know what's more deadly and deceptive than wicked and evil things? Good things. The, the, the only thing that's maybe more deceptive, more deadly than evil, than wicked things are, are, are good things. They're, they're secondary things that we have made primary things. They're, they're second things that we've made 
first things. It's those good things in this life that can be so deceptive because, because when we make good things ultimate, we, we start making excuses. We saw this last week. We start making excuses for not having Jesus as our number one relationship, as our, as our priority in our life. Last, last week, Brandon talked about Jesus calling people to himself, to this banquet, to this feast, and, and people are making up all these silly excuses. They're all these secondary things that, that aren't bad things in and of themselves. They're just secondary things, and, and they're using these secondary things as excuses for not pursuing Jesus as primary, for not showing up to the banquet, for not showing up to the feast. Does that sound familiar to anyone else but me? This is the cost of priority. It's battling, it's waging war against these idols in our lives, these secondary things, these these sometimes good things that we've made primary things, we've made ultimate. And in doing so, we've been deceived, we've been captured by a lie that those things will actually fulfill or satisfy. The cost of discipleship is the cost of priority. Third, the cost of discipleship is the cost of identity. It's the cost of identity. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to carry your cross. That means you're going to die to yourself. In other gospels that that parallel this passage, Jesus says, you're going to die to yourself. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to carry your cross and you're going to follow me. Jesus' following him is about dying to yourself. That's discipleship. Like, that's what it means to follow Jesus. Dying to yourself and to your own self-interests. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you want to follow me, go and find yourself? Jesus doesn't say find yourself. Jesus doesn't say be true to yourself. Jesus doesn't say get to know yourself. Jesus definitely doesn't say celebrate yourself. Jesus says, no, no, following me is about dying to yourself. It's carrying a cross where you die to yourself. It's not believing in yourself or knowing yourself or being true to yourself. It's dying to self. And and, and then it's follow me, Not, not, not follow your heart. Scripture says, your heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can trust it? So the call to follow Jesus isn't find myself and follow my heart. It's the total opposite. Jesus says, no, it's die to yourself and don't follow your heart. Follow me. That's why the Proverbs say in Proverbs 3, right? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on what? Your own understanding but in all your ways, acknowledge him. You're not not finding yourself. You're not trusting in your own heart and your own mind. No, no, Paul said in Romans 1, we think up foolish thoughts about who God is and what he's like. Left to ourselves, we think up foolish thoughts, Paul said. And so 
that discipleship is about dying to myself and, and, and following Jesus, not leaning on my own understanding, not, not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of my mind as I, as I follow Jesus. In the book of Ruth, there's a story about Ruth and Naomi. And in chapter one, it says that Naomi loses her husband. She loses both of her sons. One of her sons is, is married to Ruth. Ruth is her daughter-in-law. And so they are hopeless and destitute because without a husband to care for you and to protect, for you, to, to protect you and to kind of build out the family name from there, in that context, in that society, you were, you were worthless, you were hopeless, you could be destitute. And so Naomi says to her daughter-in-laws, one of which is Ruth, hey, go back to your land, go find a husband. Like you, my sons have died. Like you were released kind of from this commitment. And one of them begrudgingly goes, goes back. She wants to stay, but, but Naomi says, hey, go back like for your own sake. Like go, go back to your land, find, find a husband. And Naomi says, no, I, I made a commitment to you to your family. And then she says, wherever you go, I'm going. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Like, despite the cost, and you gotta understand like the context, the day, like despite the cost to myself, like that she's going against her own self-interest here to be faithful to a commitment that she made because, because being true to this commitment could mean that she is destitute, that she is hopeless, like homeless. Like, like you gotta understand what's happening here. She is totally without protection, but she, she honors this commitment and she says, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be faithful to you. I, wherever you go, wherever you live, I'm gonna live. Your people, my people, your God, my God. And you know what happens? The Lord becomes her protector. The Lord becomes her provider. The Lord brings her another husband. The Lord rewards her for dying to her own self-interest and not following her heart, but remaining true to this commitment that she made. And the Lord rewards her. The cost of discipleship is the cost of identity. And then finally, the cost of discipleship is the cost of safety. It's the cost of safety. Jesus says, you're going to carry your cross. This, this act of carrying your cross was, was this public carrying of your cross beam of the cross that you're going to be crucified on. It was the public carrying of a cross beam down your green mile, if you will, to your place of execution with people on either side of you, jeering you and making fun of you and, and humiliating you. This isn't some new concept that Jesus is talking about. This is a very familiar concept to Jesus's audience. Carrying your cross was literally carrying your crossbar to your place of execution where you were going to die. And so Jesus says, following me is going to be like, carrying your cross, the crossbar to your place of execution. You see, sometimes we turn this carrying your cross into this figure of speech. We think that a Christian's 
cross as like the daily burdens of life. But, but Jesus is not talking about like some sort of general participation in the daily burdens of life. He's not talking about bearing like problems and anxieties in our daily lives. No, he's making clear a reference to martyrdom. He's saying, if you're gonna follow me, like you gotta be ready to die. And for some of you, you're gonna die in the exact same way I'm going to die. You're gonna be, you're gonna be crucified because he's talking to his disciples and some of them were. This is a clear reference to martyrdom. And Jesus is saying, listen, unless you're willing to die for me, then, then, then don't even start going down this road. Like, unless you're willing to like give up your own life for me, then, 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 then just count the cost now. Just don't make this decision unless you're willing to go all in. In verse 26, Jesus says, yes, even unless you're willing to give up your own life, Verse 33, unless you're willing to give up everything you're on, like unless you're willing to give total abandon to Jesus and into his call. And there's no reason to follow him. It's like the old hymn says, all to Jesus I surrender. I surrender all. That's what Jesus is commanding. That's what he's demanding here. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is Determined to go to Jerusalem, despite the cost, he, he says, I, I know that, that persecution and suffering and jail lie ahead for me. And, and people are literally pleading with him to not go, to, to not go to Jerusalem. And he's like, I got to go. Regardless of the cost, I've got to go. Paul said, I've got to finish the race. I've got to complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I've got to go and be a witness. And that word witness is the Greek word martis. It's where we get our English word martyr from. Paul knew the call to follow Jesus is the call to be a martis. That Greek word literally means to be a public witness in spite of the cost. People are pleading with him, don't go, it's not safe. Paul's like, I, I gave up safety when I decided to give my life to Jesus. We're witnesses. We're martyrs. We're public witnesses in spite of the cost. It's probably 10 years ago, Mark and I were in Chiapas, Mexico, down on the border of Guatemala with our mission partner, Harvest Evangelistic Association. And in the middle of the night at this mission center, Greg, who leads this ministry, who's a mentor of mine, wakes up at like 3 a.m. He wakes me up, he wakes Mark up, he gets all the students that are there at their school. He wakes all of them up, their school of evangelism and church planning, he wakes all of them up. He takes us onto the roof of this mission center at night and it overlooks the city of San Cristobal and you see the mountains all, all around you and you see this valley that, that goes on for a while with kind of villages. You see lights from the different villages down this valley and, and in the mountains you can see some lights from some of these very remote villages. It's in the middle of the night and Greg has us all up on, this, on the roof of the mission center and he's preaching and he's challenging these, these students to go and be witnesses for Jesus and to go and plant churches and make, and, and make disciples. And, and, and I'll never forget it. Greg looks at them 
in the darkness at 3 a.m. on that roof. And he says, some of you are going to die. Now listen, this wasn't hyperbole. This was just a fact. Because some of those mountain villages where those students were going to go and preach the gospel, some of those villages are very hostile to Christianity. Very. It was commonly known that evangelists going into these villages would be killed. Usually by the villagers attacking them with machetes. I've seen one of the evangelists who miraculously survived. They hacked him to death with machetes. They left him on the side of this trail to die. Miraculously, he survived and standing in a room and I'm looking at this guy, his arm's missing. He's got a wood arm in place where his arm was. He's got a scar all the way down his face where they're hacking his face with machetes, trying to basically chop off part of his head. Many of the others weren't as fortunate. They lost their lives. And so when Greg's telling these students, some of you are going to die, not only is it just reality, not only is it fact, they know it. Like they, they understand because some people they know have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. It's just, it's a reality, it's just a fact. In some of those mountain villages on the border of Guatemala, and so Greg looks at some of them and he says, some of you are going to die. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, and if you do, your blood will scream out to every person that walks over that trail to that village that Jesus loves you. In Revelation 12, It says that we overcome our accuser, our adversary, the devil. We overcome him by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony. And then it says this, and that we didn't love our lives so much as to shrink from death. That's how we overcome. The blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony and that we didn't love our lives so much as to shrink from death. The cost of discipleship, make no mistake, is safety. It's the cost of safety. But there's not just a cost of discipleship. Here, here's what you've got to understand, because some of you are like, man, I'm not about that life. Like, I'm just going to stay a fan. Like, I'm just going to remain one of the crowd. Like, that's too much for me. And listen, that's not a bad place to get to if you're like just real with yourself and you're like, hey, I'm not really about that. Um, that's too much for me. I'm counting the cost. And I'm either going to kind of walk that commitment back, right? Or I'm not going to make that commitment to become a follower of, of Jesus because, because I'm not really about all of that. Like, that's just kind of too much for me. And that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, count the cost. See if you're the real deal. See if you really want to make this commitment. 
But, but, but before you just kind of leave and you're like, hey, I'm not really about that. Like, I'm just going to remain a fan. Like, that, that sounds better to me. But before you get there, here, here's what you've also got to understand. There's a cost to non-discipleship. Like, if you're like, hey, I'm just going to kind of go through the religious routine. Like, I'm just going to kind of watch the show. Like, this is theater. Like, all the things you were talking about, like, that's kind of more me. And so I'm just going to stick there. Like, I'm just going to be a fan. Listen, there's a cost to discipleship, but there's also a cost to non-discipleship. Jesus says, if these conditions of discipleship are not kept, the disciples, like salt losing its saltiness, they become worthless. The the cost of non-discipleship is that like every area of your life, it's, it, it begins to be impacted and touched with like worthlessness and deception. There's a cost to not following Jesus. First of all, there's a cost to you. The cost of not following Jesus, like the cost of non-discipleship to you is that you you don't live a life that makes sense in light of eternity. You, You don't live a life that makes sense in ultimate reality. Like you begin to hope in things that won't last and will never satisfy, will never fulfill you. And you begin to have this selfish existence. There's a cost to you. There's there's a cost to your marriage. Like, I don't know if you figured this out yet, but you can't change your spouse. Like, you can't. And if you're not married and you're like, or you're dating, you're like, hey, it's okay because like I, I can change. Like, you can't change your spouse. You can't do that. But you know who can? Jesus. Jesus can change your spouse. There's a cost to your marriage. Like if if you don't love your spouse, or if you love your spouse more than than Jesus, or or if you find yourself loving other things more than Jesus, there's a cost to your marriage. Trust me, you want a husband or a wife that loves Jesus more than you, that loves Jesus more than anything else in this world, because only Jesus can transform you into a godly husband, into a godly wife. It's only Jesus that can bring fruitfulness and flourishing to your marriage. So there's a cost of non-discipleship to your marriage. There's a cost of non-discipleship to your kids. Like if you have kids, I I just want to ask you like to zoom out for a second. Like I know, because I'm right there with you. Like you're in a week with with, with school coming up and activities and and, and sports and practices and games and meetings, right? And and maybe class parties and like all kinds of stuff. Like I get it because because our family's there too. Like we've got three kids. And so, but but what I want to ask you to do is just kind of zoom out from all of that just for a second. Like zoom out from that. I was a youth pastor for years when I first started in ministry. I was a college pastor for for four or five years. Mark and I led a ministry called Raider Church for college students. And, And here's what I can tell you from that time as a youth pastor and as a college pastor, and, and even still to this day. And I'm just gonna be real with you. Like, I'm gonna give you some, I'm gonna give you like a look behind the scenes. Like, I'm just gonna be real with you. I'm asking you to zoom out for a second. Every week when I was doing Raider Church, 
every week and sometimes more than once a week. I'd get a call or an email from parents whose kid had left home, come to tech, broken because their kids no longer went to church, no longer cared about Jesus, and were making terrible decisions. And they're pleading, Clayton, can y'all do something? Can you go get them? Can you talk with them? Can, you know, and we're, we, we tried to do whatever we, whatever we could. But, but, but can I tell you something? Like, I'm just gonna be real with you. From my days as a youth pastor, from my days as a college pastor, and even still to this day as the pastor of this church, like, I'm just gonna be real with you. Like, this is just a behind the scenes look. Most of the time, most of the, not all the time, but most of the time, the overwhelming majority of the time for 18 years that kid was at home. Jesus was number two. And he was number two to baseball, to basketball, to volleyball, to cheer, to gymnastics, to work, to golf, you name it. The overwhelming majority of the time Jesus was number two. And the family only showed up to watch church happen when conditions were absolutely perfect and there was nothing else going on. Like, I'm just being real with you. Overwhelming majority of the time. That's what the story was. My time at Raider Church, we were fairly close with and connected with a lot of the baseball players at Tech. And this was during a time when they were, obviously they're still very good, but we were, they, they, they were going to like College World Series like almost every other year, right? And a lot of those players were coming to Raider Church and we had a relationship with a lot of those players. And here's what I found over and over and over and over again. And, and, and even Josh Young, who plays for the Rangers now, would, would testify to this. He's actually, he's spoken here before and talked about this before. That, that, that what happens when baseball is number one, when it is primary, when, when you struggle or when that's gone, you have no idea who you are or how to function or how to operate anymore. I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many of those players that even got drafted and played in the minor leagues for just a little bit, but because that's just never going to last that long, and it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't last that long for 99.99999% of players. When it was over, I'm having conversations with some of them, and they have no idea what to do. They are completely lost. They are completely hopeless because Jesus was number two or he was in the back seat their entire baseball career because baseball was ultimate. Listen, your kids have a very small chance of playing division one sports. Like, let's just be real, right? It's a very small chance. And, and, and then from there, like the chances of them going on to play, play, play professional sports are so low. You have a greater chance of being struck by lightning like three or four times than it is that your kids are going to go on to play professional sports. Like that's just the reality. 
And, and I've got to remind myself of this every day and every week because like I said, I'm right there with you. I'm right there in the thick of this. The chances are so low. But, but, but here's what I can tell you. Like, here's what I know. Zoom out with me for just a second. My son's batting average isn't going to help his marriage one iota. It's not gonna help him be a better dad. It's not gonna help him be a better husband. It's just not. And so if that is primary in my home, and it's a good thing, if that's primary in my home, and that's all we do, and all we say yes to are the secondary things, which makes us say no to what should be primary things, what ends up happening? We communicate, this is God, this is primary, this is worth the cost, this isn't. So I just want you to zoom out for a second. What are you saying no to? What are you saying yes to? And what does that reveal about what's primary in your home? Like you can give lip service to what's primary all day long, but that doesn't make it true. What are you saying yes to? What are you saying no to? And what does that reveal about what's really the priority, what's really primary in your home? Parents have to say no to a lot of good things. Every parent knows that. And parents have to say yes to lots of things their kids don't want to do for their kids' good. That's just being a parent. And so I want to challenge you to make discipleship, like your, the spiritual direction of your family, the, the priority. It should be what's primary in your home. And everything else takes a back seat as a result. Listen, if you've treated Jesus as number two in your life and in your family, and if your only commitment to your church family is just kind of showing up once every once in a while when nothing else is going on, then we shouldn't be surprised at all when our marriages start struggling and when our kids are struggling. Like you can prioritize discipleship now and maybe you won't have to call me later. But listen, if and when you get there, we're going to take that call. We're going to take that email. And we're going to get in there with you and do everything that we possibly can to see something change. But my guess is, is if you could avoid that phone call, if you could avoid that email, you probably would. There's a cost to non-discipleship. There's a cost. The big idea today is this. Fans... Come and see. But Jesus isn't calling for fans. We, we all start here, and that's great. But Jesus isn't calling for fans. He's calling for followers, for disciples. And followers come and die. Die to yourself. You take up your cross and follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, great author, wrote this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, when a Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. This is the call of discipleship. Louis XIV was a king of France for about 72 years. At that time, he was the longest reigning monarch. Louis XIV is who we think of when we think of like France being a superpower, like, you know, like way back in the day. Um, he's the one that like brought France to prominence. He was a violent man committed to, to war and domination. 
and the success that he saw in his kingdom growing in, in, in power and wealth and influence made him a arrogant, miserable man. When he was confronted about his power and his desire to, to dominate and to take over other nations, his response was, I am the state. I am France. That's how arrogant he was. Well, when he died, he had this direction. He had directions made for everything he wanted done in his funeral, like down to the minute detail. He, he wanted everything situated so that he was praised and looked at as the, the light of France. In fact, he, he, he made it to where there would be a single candle. He had all of this design where there was a single candle in the sanctuary that reflected off of his gold coffin that it would give light to the rest of the sanctuary. This, that's how much this man thought of himself. That's the cost of non-discipleship. It's self-absorbed disillusionment. So he has everything written down like to the, to the last detail to make him look great. Well, the bishop walks up to the stage, he goes behind the pulpit, he takes his fingers and he licks them. He extinguishes the candle. It's darkness, silence. You could hear a pin drop. And in the darkness, the bishop says, only God is great. He alone is worthy. See, make no mistake, the, the, the cost of discipleship is great, but Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. He, he, he alone is worthy of your life. And, and so Jesus is calling you into life in himself. That, that's the call here. Yes, there's a cost, but, but he's greater. And when you follow Jesus, you get Jesus. He is your reward. He is worthy and he is enough. The old hymn, The Wonderful Cross, has lyrics that go like this. Jesus bids us, the cross bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. True life, real life is found in Jesus. That's why Colossians 1 says you were created by Jesus for Jesus. And so the call of discipleship, the, the call to, to count the cost and, and to be willing to pay the cost, it's a call into life. It's a call into life that you might truly live. David Platt said this about following Jesus. He said, radical obedience to Christ is not easy. It's not comfort, it's not wealth, it's not prosperity in this world. Radical obedience to Christ risks losing all of these things, but in the end, such risks find their reward in Christ. And he is more than enough for us. It's where real life is found. It's in discipleship because you get Jesus. You were created for him and he's better than anything. Trust me, he's better than anything you got going on. It's why all of heaven 
even right now is worshiping Jesus saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and wealth and power and wisdom and glory and honor and praise. He's worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain in your place for your sin. That you might be forgiven of your sin and made right with God. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus today, I wanna challenge you, count the cost and give your life to Jesus because he's worth it. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill out our connect form. Let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. Worthy is the lamb. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word here. God, and I pray that your spirit would just stir up love and affection for Jesus right now in these moments, that that your spirit would, would call us into discipleship despite the cost, that, that we would have hearts that say, whatever the cost, whatever it means, I'm gonna die to myself and I'm gonna follow Jesus. And so God, I know that in this place, there are so many of us, including myself, we, we've been, we give ourselves to secondary things that, that are not worthy of our hearts. They're not worthy of our love and affection. And, and, and God, I pray that right now in this moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would call us out of those secondary things and you would call us into that which you created us for. That's a relationship with Jesus. So in this moment, Holy Spirit, work in us. Go, go do battle in us against our idols and against our comfort and against our apathy and against our own selfishness. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Our team's gonna lead us in worship and as they do, here's what I wanna invite you to do. We're gonna have prayer teams up here along the front. They're here to pray with you. There's an altar with steps up here. You can come and kneel and just pray on your own if you'd like. But, but here's what I wanna challenge you to do. If, if something in your life has become primary that shouldn't be primary, I'm, I'm asking you, I'm challenging you to repent of that and give your wholehearted devotion to Jesus all over again. If there's brokenness in your marriage or at home or in a certain situation, whatever it might be, maybe it's a cost of non-discipleship. I wanna ask that you humble yourself before the Lord and ask the Holy Spirit of God to change your heart and to bring healing there, to bring repentance there. And so our prayer teams are here to pray with you. If you'd like to pray with someone, there's altar here where you can just pray on your own. Whatever the Lord's leading you to do, let's say yes. Yes, Lord, let's worship him.